this week's edition of the Equilib Report and Weekly Review. I am Paul Harrell, and you're noticing that you're not hearing the familiar voice of Dr. Dominic Aquila, and that is because he is overseas teaching uh, in the nation of Egypt. So be praying for him, be praying for safe travels, be praying that he is delivered back to us here in the States uh, with stories to tell. I am joined this week by uh, my co-host, who is the pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Fort Oglethorpe, Georgia. His name is T.E. Ryan Beast. Ryan, welcome to the Equal Report and Weekly Review, sir. Thank you, Paul. It's a pleasure to be here. So uh, tell us a little bit about yourself before we get started. I mean, I know I mentioned that you are a teaching elder in the PCA. Uh, you are a pastor uh, of the uh, the pastor of the uh, First Presbyterian Church in Fort Oglethorpe, Georgia. You are also probably a familiar name to this Aquila Report audience because your articles are frequently in the top 10 list of the top 10 weekly articles. Go ahead. Well, thanks. Yes, I've enjoyed listening to this podcast. Uh, long-time listener, first-time speaker, as uh, as they as they say, and uh, been here as pastor at Fort Oglethorpe Pres um, for five years next month. And before that, I was pastor for a little over five years in a town called Winona, Mississippi, at the first church there. And originally from St. Louis, Missouri, went to seminary in Jackson and college at Grove City in Pennsylvania. So lived all over. And uh, recently, I understand your congregation celebrated uh, an anniversary of some kind. That's right. Yes, we had our 40th anniversary of being in our current building. Our current building is the longest continuously operated house of worship in the city of Fort Oglethorpe, which sounds impressive, but the city of Fort Oglethorpe, Georgia, dates back to uh, the late 40s, mid 50s. Prior to that, it was an army, uh, a cavalry base. And so we are actually uh, meeting in the old post chapel. So even before this was a town, uh, the, the building where we worship was um, was the was where the, the soldiers worship. We're told Eisenhower and Patton all all came through here and worshipped uh, on uh, the Lord's Day in this building. That's awesome. I love that history, um, and I know the listeners uh, love it as well. Okay, so this is the Quill Report and Weekly Review. You guys know the drill. We've got 10 articles from last week that were the most clicked on, and we've got that list for you. Uh, Ryan Beasy is going to start with number 10 and go through six, and I'm going to read number five and go to one, and then we're going to get started kind of breaking these down for you. All right, number 10, what the Jubilee of Aquinas says about Rome and Roman-Protestant relations in some quarters by Tom Hervey. And then number nine, the most terrifying verse in the Bible by Marco Bovino. Number eight, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry Goddess by Joe Rigney. Seven, Cessationist the Film, a review by Tim Challies. And then uh, number six, The Sons of God and Daughters of Man, part two by Mitch Case. Coming in at number five, we got Todd Pruitt. You probably have a good pastor. Number four, Mike uh, Mikey Lynch, reigning in the presumptuous the presumptuous parachurch. Uh, coming at number three, uh, we have uh, Kathleen Buswell Nielsen, "Don't Deny Our Fallenness." Number two, uh, by O. Palmer Robertson, "The PCA at Fifty: Essential Elements from the Past Will Guide the Future." And coming in mm -hmm. at number one. 
Karen Campbell writing uh, Shannon Harris kissed the truth goodbye. So this is about the wife of um, his name escapes me right now. Uh, Joshua left, Harris. Joshua Harris, who left the faith. You remember the book that he write, you know, wrote back in the 90s, late 90s, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. So this is his ex-wife now. Uh, the subheadline here, important takeaways from this book. To be absolutely clear, Shannon was most certainly a victim of spiritual abuse. It is a compelling and painful read, but she has now left this. Shannon uh, Harris has also left the faith uh, as well. So, yeah, this is uh, it's not surprising that this was number one, considering that the uh, I guess the act of uh, or Josh Harris being an apostate was something that really shook a lot of people back when it happened. And so now this is the number one article from last week. Ryan Beasy, what were your thoughts on this? Well, you know, th this I think there are a number of, as you and uh, Dominic normally note, a number of threads that are tied together. And this, of course, starts off that thread. Another author capitalizing on deconstruction. I was reminded as I read it of uh, that Lutheran satire sketch with that Hans Feeney has done. Uh, he's reflecting on a number of high-profile leaders in big evangelicalism who turn their backs on the faith and Christianity and claim, well, Christianity never could answer the deep questions that I had. And he likens it to, to somebody in the kiddie pool uh, who says, well, you know, I don't like swimming because swimming never really got me cool. And there's these guys in the deep end say, well, then come into the deep end. And no, 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 I don't, I don't, like, uh, I don't like swimming because it never really satisfied me. Well, Here's another uh, situation where, where um, maybe it wasn't uh, that uh, Christianity has failed, but just that they never really got into uh, the depths of Christianity. You know, her husband was very popular when I was in college. I think I, th I really think he messed a lot of people up in our generation, and and a little bit uh, younger with with that I kiss dating goodbye. Um, you know, the trouble with her ex-husband was he created a new legalism, right, in an attempt to keep people out of sexual sins, uh, he engaged in uh, Phariseeism. And you know, the reviewer uh, says, uh, detailing his courtship with Shannon and outlined a script for parents and young adults to follow. And so that's you know, another reminder to be very careful when you create a script, a set of rules beyond those of what the Bible gives us. Instead, we should, we should rest in the scripture and its principles. And so you know, here in this review, we get a taste of Probably what's what's in the book of the the dreadful results of her husband creating imposing extra biblical standards on his wife in his marriage. Uh, the the reviewer says Shannon paints the tragic picture of a young woman who was told by church authorities what friends to have, what clothes to wear, what music to listen to, and when and how she ought to participate in ministry, how to raise her children. The goal was to make her the Sovereign Grace Ministries version of a godly woman. And when the abuse scandal broke in, in that uh, communion, they sent her husband out west to finally go to seminary and get you know, formal ministerial academic training. But that's, that's another caution for us. In this whole uh, tragic debacle with the Harris is, is, is a reminder of indicating the scripture's uh, injunction not to lay hands on a man too quickly. And so part of the tragedy in, in the Harris saga is that the family – uh, they were put into positions of prominence and leadership before the, the head of the family was ready, before Josh was spiritually mature. Uh, but, you know, he said things that every homeschooling dad wants to hear, right? <laughs> you know, but the foundation of his ministry wasn't Christ. It wasn't the glory of Christ. It was don't touch, don't handle, don't taste. It was a list. 
And so, yeah, the reviewer concludes that, that she was probably a victim of a spiritual abuse. And that should be a warning to us all. I know, Paul, you've had your own uh, bouts uh, with, with spiritual abusers. Um, but she openly states she is not a Christian, that she found studying the Bible boring. And that, you know, that just breaks my heart. Um, the, yeah, you know, it's such an interesting time, uh, you know, and that with the, the I guess the fad of it all. And, you know, mm. you can kind of sympathize with, uh, you know, with people kind of buying into it. it it's, it's another cautious tale of any any time yes. somebody somebody gets kind of catapulted to popularity among Christian circles. Right. And it's not necessarily that the popularity is is a bad thing, but it does need to be a, a little bit. You give people caution. You know, is this really biblical? Is this really something good? I mean, or am I just trying to make myself feel better? And I, I just think about with, uh, you know, as a father of a daughter. Uh, yeah. You know what I mean? You know what, what you would want. You just wanted somebody to prescribe you a uh, an easy how to manual right. to keep your daughter pure, if you will, to yeah. keep her from sinning sexually, to keep, you know. And, um, you know, it's like, uh, I guess I can, I can sympathize, sympathize with that and how this kind of hypnotized, uh, an entire generation really. And now we're yes. seeing the fruits of it all. And again, the actual title of the book is the woman they wanted shattering the illusion of the good Christian wife. Um, yeah. so that's the actual title of the book. Anyway, uh, I'll give you the last word on this article, Ryan. Well, I, uh, I think I'll quote from the, the reviewer, not only did Shannon miss the Jesus of the Bible. But she misrepresented the Bible itself and how it is taught in evangelical churches. She claims that she learned because Eve sinned first and offered the forbidden fruit to Adam that all women, including any future women, are responsible for all the sins of mankind. And you know that's it's a false uh, Christianity that she's rejecting, and that is uh, th- that's so tragic. Uh, but a, a good warning for us all, even if it's a somber way to begin our week. Yes, absolutely. So. Uh, number two last week, the PCA at 50 essential elements from the past will guide the future. O. Palmer Robertson mm. uh, writing this. Uh, the Aquila Report links back to the Gospel Coalition, so they published this piece. Now, the editor's note here is that this was an adapted article from an address that he gave, O. Palmer Robinson gave, at the 50th General Assembly of the PCA. Uh, and so they have that um in a PDF format. But anyway, this is uh, interesting. A, a lot of I'm sure you were there and actually heard this speech uh, in person, Ryan Beasy. I did. I it was it was thrilling. What a privilege to be in the in the same room as uh, Palmer Robertson. And then and we've had we got to know his children a little bit uh, when when they were in Jackson and we were in Jackson at the same time. And a, a giant in the faith, a, a great hero uh, in in the PCA, especially now, but for for the whole life of the of our existence as a, as a as a faith communion, it was a superb address. Uh, and you know there were four other or three men, three other men on that stage. Four men uh, whom they titled founding fathers. Charles McGowan uh, was up there, uh, Paul Koistra, uh, as well as Wayne Herring, and each each one of the four gave a different take on their reflections. At the uh, at the first General Assembly or their time in the early PCA, uh, it was interesting. Paul Koister had had a much uh, less um, negative experience with the old PCUS, whereas Wayne Herring was recounting the travails and the hardships of the men who came into the PCA uh, by those in the PCUS. Just what abuse uh, they suffered, the great costs. And then there was Palmer Robertson, who was just lovely. 
this glorious. It was almost a sermon with the, the metaphor uh, for the PCA as the perfect bride of Christ and her husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he, uh, Palmer, sees three foundational pillars for uh, the PCA, for her future faithfulness, taking us back to the Bible, our standards, and uh, the committees. That we must be committed to the sufficiency, the authority, the inerrancy, the infallibility of the Scripture, and the issue, of course, of sufficiency is is being tested now, right? We we're settled on inerrancy and infallibility, at least in the PCA, but sufficiency is where there's pressure at this point, and a lot of uh, the articles in the the weekly uh, top ten will will bear that out. But Palmer just highlighted the Bible says the Bible says, and that was his. His mantra for that that point, and then full subscription to the Westminster Standards. He reminds us that you can't easily pull out a few things from the Westminster Standards and leave the whole system intact. He uh, he says this. Compare this statement of our faith to the beautiful wool sweater you bought while visiting Scotland. Uh, you've got a a thread that's come loose. Do you pull that thread? No, you don't dare. He says the whole sweater has been skillfully knit together as a single whole. Pull out one thread. And the whole thing unravels. The original founding fathers of the PCA adopted the entire Westminster Confession of Faith as the essence of what they believed. That's the meaning of full subscription. Now, of course, we have people wanting to use uh, good faith subscription to undo full subscription and to pretend that good faith subscription is something it's not, that is a broad or system subscription. And that's not what good faith subscription is, but we're seeing the results of that line of thinking today. These guys with massive, significant differences on holiness, on philosophy of ministry, on the Christian life, on worship, and on what it is to be ordained, who have no real understanding of the Westminster system. And, you know, Palmer has, again, shown that he understands you know, where where the flashpoints are in the PCA now. It's subscription is a, is a huge issue and how we need to have unity on what does it mean to be true to the Reformed faith. What does it mean to receive and adopt the Westminster Standards? And then he talks about the committees. Uh, there's, of course, enormous power wielded by the permanent committees to influence uh, discipleship, to influence congregations. Of course, many congregations will simply buy whatever literature or curricula the denomination puts out simply because they assume it's trustworthy. And, you know, most of the time, the vast majority of the time it is with, with Great Commission publications, with with uh, CDM. Yeah, it, but we need to not just assume uh, that we can just trust the committees is, is what Palmer was warning us against. We need to have this oversight. We need to remain vigilant. And, you know, for a while, uh, many of us were not as vigilant as we should have been over the committees. And so uh, Palmer says this, uh, let us not forget the wisdom of the founding fathers. A great deal of the ministry of the denomination hinges upon the work of the permanent committees of the General Assembly. But let us remember that they have a responsibility to give account to the committees of commissioners every year. Let all sessions and presbyteries be sure they send their commissioners that we might continue to be led by the courts of the church, says Palmer Robertson. And I don't know if you were there for this debate, Paul, at, at the General Assembly, but we took a step in the right direction. We did it, uh, I think it was a, a Tuesday night vote uh, to require the permanent committees to report any material changes each year to uh, the committees of commissioners. Did you get to, uh, were, you, were you there for that vote? I was not. I was there okay. on Wednesday. Okay, I tried on to Wednesday. watch the, some of the other days, but I don't think I saw that. 
Okay, but that was a, a very important step. But, you know, I was talking with David Hall not that long ago, and he said, Ryan, you, you sound so uh, excited about that, that vote. But, you know, 40 years ago, that wouldn't have even been necessary. It would have just been understood that, of course, the permanent committees uh, are accountable <laughs> to the General Assembly. And then he talks about the seminaries. Uh, and, of course, initially the PCA had no seminary. Uh, when we merged with the RPCES, uh, they brought along the two covenants. Uh, and in the early days of the PCA, many uh, pastors, PCA pastors, were trained at Covenant. Uh, now, Covenant claims to be the largest supplier of pastors to the PCA, but I think it's, I think RTS has actually overtaken them. Um, but I know Covenant has been in sharp decline uh, for the last uh, several years. Um, so the PCA uh, ministerial candidates are voting with their feet. Uh, but, you know, that being said, I've heard very encouraging things about what Tom Gibbs uh, has been doing at, at Covenant and, and the vision he has. And so I think, you know, we may be seeing uh, a, re- a renaissance at, at Covenant uh, soon that she could again be a leader in the PCA in the reform world. But that, of course, remains to be seen. And so, again, you know, old Palmer Robertson, having been around for the entire existence of the PCA, understands uh, the denomination better than most of us, I think. Yeah, you know, I didn't realize, uh, you know, I don't know a lot of the particulars that led up, the grievances that led up to the split. You know, I know generally the sufficiency of Scripture, the Bible was being questioned, you know. Um, and, and, but when he talked about the permanent committees, they gave this example. And so the General Assembly's Permanent Committee of Christian Education, for example, mm. so this was back before the split, had adopted the negatively critical views of the Old Testament. These views were saying Moses could not have possibly written the Pentateuch. Those first five books of the Bible couldn't possibly date date back that far. Instead, they were saying in the uh, Pentateuch, uh, we have a record of the evolutionary development of Israel's religion across many generations. This view was called the JEDB hypothesis. Along with its subsequent modifications, it was totally destroying faith in the divine origin of the first five books of the Bible. And they were teaching that, uh, you know, to the denomination, and I'm assuming also to kids. To Sunday school classes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy to me. No wonder there was a split, you know? Right, right, yeah. And if you read Machen's Christianity and Liberalism, it's the same, uh, he he warns of the same uh, situation that liberalism, modernism isn't just a... A, th- a thing for the seminaries and the universities now it's seeping into the publications that are being read by the people in the pew so this is this was a serious issue and if you don't if you can't have faith in Moses and in, in the reliability of the Pentateuch what what can you believe because Jesus appeals to Moses uh, Christ died for our sins and rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures so of course we need to be able to uh, trust the reliability of the Old and the New Testament. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so that is uh, the number two article. Again, that speech by O. Palmer Robinson, uh, written down for you to read it yourself. Number three from last week, Don't Deny Our Fallenness, written by Kathleen Buswell Nielsen. Uh, so Wheaton College, they've got a library there, like most colleges do, and they recently renamed the uh Wheaton College Library. It used to be the the Buswell Library. Uh, Kathleen Buswell Nielsen. So that's I think her grandfather mm-hmm. uh, is essentially saying that by renaming the library, um, that it's failing to tell the gospel story. So 
Uh, you remember the stories in the press about you know tearing down Civil War statues or tearing down founding father statues here in this country. This is also kind of a part of you know trying to edit history, uh, trying to erase the wrongs uh, or perceived injustices. Uh, this having to do with apparently one time uh, Buswell d- denied somebody admission to the college because they were black. Ryan Beasley, what are your thoughts on this story? Well, I, you know, we are all sinners. And yes, this was a horrible sin. And you know, she says, President Buswell is my grandfather, whom I knew and loved. Uh, I acknowledge with sorrow that my grandfather sinned by refusing admission to a black applicant going back uh, in 1939. Uh, but she, she makes a good point, I think, here. We should not refuse to honor a godly leader from the past because of certain sins. Uh, the Buswell name is pertinent, as many institutions today, both Christian and non-Christian, have chosen the evil of racism as the one that cancels a person, right? It's this one sin that can cancel a person. Interestingly, the Library at Covenant Theological Seminary is also the Buswell Library. Uh, so I'll be curious to see if there's a move to change the name of the library there. Yeah, it was, it's like it's so interesting to me and this kind of and I compare it to the Civil War statue because I think it's what you're seeing here. You're seeing this this cultural, uh, you know, movement kind of once again infect um, you know, religious uh, colleges, religious institutions, and, and instead of speaking truth to it, we're kind of bending with the culture here and saying, yeah, you know, I think we do need to try to edit history to try to, and it doesn't, it doesn't really do anything. And I, I've, I've said this for a long time, Ryan, that I feel like the, uh, this, uh, this generation that is so upset with, let's just say racism, slavery, uh, bigotry, um, they're able to identify uh, injustice. I mean, not all injustice, but they're able to <laughs> look back at history and say this was unjust. This was unjust, but they don't understand. They don't know how to reconcile because of the lack of of a Christian worldview. They don't know how to reconcile right. why men in the past could do good things and also be sinners and do bad things, <laughs> like we all are. We all are capable of good things, and we do good things in our life. We also sin and we struggle with sin, and so we're and we are we're trying to apply you know, this 21st century ethic, um, which is not by any means perfect, but you try to apply that, um, you know, on what happened in the past. Yeah. And uh, it's just it's a recipe for disaster. And it's it's, it's sad to see that they are renaming that building. I really think it's awful. So Well, it it uh, there's there's a, a, a heart issue also. And I think one of your one of perhaps last week's top 10 uh, dealing with Rosario Butterfield's new uh, book, The Five Lies of Our uh, of Our Culture, uh, she points out that this is a counterfeit repentance. They're repenting of the sins of someone else. You know, they're not repenting of their own sins. It's easy to repent of uh, President Buswell's sins from was that 90 years ago? <laughs> uh, but why why don't we start repenting of our own sins now? Well, because that's hard, and that requires a cost. Whereas, you know, the only cost with renaming a library is just whatever it costs to buy new stamps and put new stickers on the books and maybe some new letters for the outside. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> but that's that's a that's a good point about where we don't want to repent of our own sins. We all we want to point the finger at, you know, at, at dead men, really. So um, it's coming in at number four. Did you have anything else you wanted to add there, Ryan? 
No, I, I don't have anything else. Thanks. Okay. All right. So coming in at number um, number four, we're on here. Reigning in the presumptuous parachurch by Mikey Lynch. Two specific examples of where the presumptuous parachurch should be reigned in. Now, Ryan, I thought you, I mean, you know, I thought you were a huge fan of, 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 of parachurches and, and there's nothing, there should be nothing wrong with parachurches. But this article is saying, no, wait a second. And I, I don't know if you're a fan of parachurches or not. I'm putting words in your mouth. Um, <laughs> but, you know, this is this is calling into question, um, you know, the, the benefits of uh, parachurches. What are you what are your thoughts on this piece by Mikey Lynch? Well, it's interesting. It's published by a parachurch organization. So uh, it's obviously not arguing for the abolition of parachurch but as so many articles do it's our it's urging balance and proper uh, priority for the church the actual church uh, he says it is common for parachurches to gain more momentum finances and enthusiastic support than surrounding churches and there is a danger i think of parachurches usurping the role of the actual church or for people to ascribe much more worth and enthusiasm to parachurch conferences, podcasts, speakers, seminars than the ordinary means of grace, which are found in the fellowship with a local body of believers. And, you know, these tensions have been around at least since the first and second so-called Great Awakenings. You know, people uh, want to, you know, they, they would much rather go hear a, a, a famous orator than simply go to morning and evening worship, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, in a church. And so there is that that danger. And so his prescription is local church membership or adherence uh, should be the ordinary requirement for all staff and parachurch leaders and volunteers. So he says the parachurch needs to start leading by their own participation in local churches. When I was in seminary, I encountered folks who were coming from parachurch organizations, and they told me how many people in parachurch organizations out in Colorado Springs did not take part in an actual church. You know, you think of Colorado Springs as the parachurch capital of the of the country or the, the Bible Belt of the West, but a lot of these parachurch people don't actually go to church, my friend said. Uh, that they, they find, you know, they do their spiritual stuff Monday through Friday, and so involvement in the church on the Lord's Day was just kind of optional. And so he says, if parachurches encourage their members and leaders to find a spiritual home in a local church, then they do not need to assume primary responsibility for all their spiritual, emotional, and practical needs. And that's a great point that the parachurch is not equipped with the means to do that anyway. Right? The church has a mission, and that mission comes from Christ, uh, and no other organization on earth is sent to make uh, disciples by baptizing and uh, teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded. Uh, so you know, the parachurch can't replace the church, but sometimes she tries. He says it's important for parachurches to ruthlessly justify their activities against their specific narrow mission. Why does this parachurch exist? It's important for parachurches to regularly ask not only quality and holism questions, how can we make this better and richer, but also efficiency and effectiveness questions. How can we achieve the main results with less time, money, and effort? It's uh, I think it's worthy to note that you know T4G was a very effective parachurch organization together for the gospel, but they recently disbanded because they said, you know, we've been doing this long enough. We think our moment has passed. That's fine. This is the last one. Now all of you people go to your churches. 
<laughs> and, and that's great integrity uh, in the men who are who are leading the the T4G organization to recognize that that you know we we we've we've had a moment it's been wonderful now go uh, to church because the church will never perish so I think there's some good words of wisdom here you know it's been said and feel free to disagree with me uh, but it, it has been said that uh, a lot of these parachurches are uh, operating on like left of center political ideology. I, I find that to be a pretty convincing argument. I, generally, I think that's true. And a lot of times, you know, you, you you wonder why. I've got a lot of reasons. But if a lot of the people at these parachurch ministries are not going to church or they think it's optional, I would put that under the category of evidence as to why <laughs> some of these uh, parachurches seem to be uh, left of center. And, you know, being and then then that also kind of goes into the the stream of of uh, you know what's being pumped out then tends to be uh, not always but tends to be uh, content based on presuppositions that are just in fact not true uh, mm. a lot of times. Um, I'll give you the last word on this article, Ryan. Oh, well, thanks. Yeah, I think that's something to uh, to note that a lack of involvement in the church has profound impact that we are designed for spiritual fellowship and where that spiritual fellowship with God's people in his church because of the church of course the church predates the fall right the first presbyterian church was adam and his wife eve and uh, they had the you know the worst pastor in human history adam <laughs> um, so the church exists as a creation ordinance um, and so we were designed to be part of it, and when we reject that or when we try to create something new, there are problems that inevitably result. All right, so the number five, so halfway through the list here from last week, Todd Pruitt writing, you probably have it. So speaking of bad pastors, speaking of the worst pastor of all time, <laughs> uh, the headline here, you probably have a good pastor. Subheadline, I am calling for careful consideration as to whether we have made too much of the bully pastor while mm. irresponsibly neglecting the far more common reality of the bullied and wounded pastor. Interesting take here. Um, one of the takeaways here has the glut of material uh, dedicated to diagnosing and exposing bad pastors been recklessly unaccompanied and uh, counterweighted by the far less interesting fact that most of us have good pastors. What is more, has the definition of bullying become so broad and subjective that nearly every pastor can be accused of bullying by doing no more than simply conforming to the Bible's instructions for pastors and churches? Given today's standards for what constitutes bullying and narcissism, I don't know how the Apostle Paul can avoid either charge. After all, he called the church to publicly excommunicate those in the church <laughs> who violated God's standard for sexual chastity. At times, he employed sarcasm to expose error. So this is an interesting piece. And I've talked, I, I know you and I, uh, Ryan Beasley, we recently talked, you, your podcast, great podcast, The Westminster Standard. Uh, I know I was a guest on that podcast, which will be out, uh, you know, not for several weeks. Um, but, you know, so this idea of, a, of abuse, uh, you know, definitely has come up uh, before. Um, and there are some people that think, well, maybe we're throwing this word around too lightly. Maybe it's being used when there was, in fact, no spiritual abuse. Uh, this kind of seems to lend credence to that when talking about, well, my pastor's a bully. Uh, and they're saying, well, maybe we're b 
being too liberal with these definitions. What are your thoughts? Well, just today, uh, Brad Isbell on uh, of PresbyCast fame, speaking of other podcasts, tweeted this. Almost anything is subject to abuse, including the word abuse. <laughs> <laughs> a, a man from your hometown, I believe. Yes, he was uh, born uh, in uh, and raised, uh, I think, yeah, here in Jonesboro. His parents still live here, so um, he uh, he has uh, he's been great. Uh, Brad is was a, a great friend to have in the PCA, mm-hmm. and he certainly has a heart for church plants like ours. Indeed. Well, Pruitt notes that of course there are bad pastors, and there's been bad pastors in the news. But you know, my my thinking on that, and I don't disagree with uh, much at all of what Todd says here, but. Yeah, there are bad pastors, just like there are bad police officers. There are bad doctors, bad lawyers, bad school teachers. There are bad parents, and it's always the bad ones who make the news, right? And what are what are good pastors doing? Well, they're the faithful pastor is trying to stay out of the limelight. You know, the the faithful pastor is similar to the Holy Spirit in that he spends his efforts calling attention to Christ, exalting Christ, highlighting Christ, drawing people to Christ. And so the faithful pastor, like the Holy Spirit, ought to constantly be deflecting attention from himself uh, to his his master. And so you know, Pruitt rightly acknowledges that you know, there are people who have been subjected to spiritual abuse. But he says the attention given to those who abuse God's people suggests, whether intentionally or unintentionally, the abusive pastors are the norm, which, of course, they are not. Uh, I think uh, Michael Kruger's new book, may be part of the problem. There's a lot of good stuff in in Michael Kruger's uh, bully pulpit, but there's also some problematic uh, prescriptions there, kind of a a believe-all report mindset. Um, He seems to suggest that any attempt to defend one's ministry against allegation of sin or abuse uh, is is almost proof positive that there is. So I I think – what Todd does is is make a, a helpful balancing corrective here, and he's been a, in pastoral ministry for 35 years, and he says, you know, I've only known a handful of people abused by their pastors, yet rarely do I speak to a pastor who hasn't been mistreated, slandered, undermined, or run off by church members. And sure, sure, but you know, and and I I want to I want to be fair, so I kind of want to push back against. Uh, Todd Pruitt, whom I, I, I love and respect, and uh, you know we're planning to, to uh, get together uh, soon. But to some extent, that's part of being in leadership, isn't it? You know, to be mistreated, to be slandered, to be undermined, to be run off. Well, you know that that comes with the territory of leadership. But it can be exceptionally harsh toward pastors, and this is where I think Pruitt's point is so valid, uh, because at, when you're a pastor, everyone feels like they are your boss. He is your boss, and you know she says. You know, some churches are just preacher killers or preacher crushers or something, something like that. And so he he doesn't just note a problem, which is which is what you know, Todd is so good at doing. He, he he not just notes the problem, but he gives a very helpful resource, the handbook for battered leaders and warns against this culture of niceness. Um, and so Pruitt's that, point. Yeah, yeah, that was that. You go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I was just the part about niceness I thought was really interesting saying um, because this kind of goes. You could just generally say we have a yeah. uh, we're letting niceness be a thing that's governing the way we talk to one another when it really just uh, allows us to avoid a uh, healthy confrontation. Yeah. You know, getting over it, you, unifying around, around the gospel in Christ Jesus and moving on with our work, you know, moving on with what we what, what the mission is. 
Yes. Uh, I thought that was really good. You know, and, and a, a lot of times he mentions Paul here, you know, who would be considered <laughs> not nice. Yes. And Paul absolutely. would not be hired on most, uh, if not all church staff. He couldn't, his resume, he wouldn't be able to be hired. They'd say, well, you know, you speak out too much. You, you evangelize too much publicly. You start riots, you know, when you <laughs> tell people the gospel. There's no way Paul would be on staff somewhere uh, yeah. with, with the way uh, the church is today. Yeah. So yeah. anyway. And, and Pruitt's point is, is so well taken. This is such a, a needed article. This, I think if O. Palmer Robertson hadn't been on this list, this would have been you know, my favorite article of the week. But it, Todd says, careful consideration as to whether we have made too much of the bullied pastor who is irresponsibly neglecting the far more common reality of the bullied and wounded pastor. Has the glut of material dedicated to diagnosing and exposing bad pastors – been recklessly unaccompanied and counterweighted by far less interesting by the far less interesting fact that most of us have good pastors and that that's a question worth asking you know you 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 see a a video of a of a corrupt police officer or a corrupt doctor and you think well all doctors are corrupt or all police officers are corrupt and you you think well all these pastors are bad so i want to be a victim too so i've got a bad pastor well maybe you ought to ask the question do i i think i've got a good pastor don't i And he gives us, you know, some suggestions for how to how to identify a a, prop, a bully pastor, but also how can you pray for your pastor? How can you bless your pastor? How can you encourage your pastor? <laughs> I picked out two of them: be patient with your pastor and pray for your pastor. You know, isn't it important? Also, last thing I'll say: I mean, evidence, 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 yeah. evidence is yeah. important. You know, if if you know, if if you're going, if you if you're going to have an issue, you need to have you need to have evidence, in my opinion, um, to back up what you're saying. You know, you mentioned it's kind of like the me tooing of of pastors. Mm. That's very much the case. Again, the same thing that we said earlier with the Civil War statues being taken down, and now we're going to rename the libraries at you know Christian colleges. So um, it's it's the kind of the same deal. We have the me too of our culture, and and also oh well, it's happening in the church too. Mm-hmm. Just an observation. Yes, yes, and we we should be we should not be mirroring and parroting the culture. And yet, so often people try to seek power in the church the same way they seek power in culture. And the way people obtain power in the culture now is by being a victim, by being offended. And people are trying to manipulate the church in, in that way as well, and which makes genuine victims. Uh, which which uh, makes their suffering all the more extreme. Yes. Um, so that was number five. Number six by Mitch Chase, The Sons of God and the Daughters of Man, part two. This is centering around the verse, one of my actually favorite parts of the Bible, <laughs> uh, Genesis chapter six. A lot of people uh, are uncomfortable with the uh, implications of this of verse, but I mean, again, there maybe some people aren't uncomfortable because there's different options of the interpretations, historical interpretations of this verse uh, about the Nephilim, about the sons of God or the B'nai Ha Elohim, uh, and what actually happened with the daughters of man. Again, in Genesis chapter six, uh, Ryan Beasy, what what were your thoughts about this piece? Well, it's interesting that this was part two of, I think, a uh, so far a five-part series uh, going through the various in, in interpretation of that those first four verses of Genesis six, and it gives, you know, the four options that the sons of God are the Sethites, the line of promise, and 
the sons of men are, are others, and then uh, the, option two that the sons of God are human kings. Uh, that is a way that human kings were often referred to. And then are these rebellious angels and their offspring are the giants or are these rebellious angels and their offspring are not uh, the Nephilim? And you know, Nephilim appears twice, I think, in the Old Testament, uh, Numbers 13:33, so after the flood, which suggests that Nephilim is not uh, genetic. But uh, I'll let our, our listeners visit uh, Mitch Case's Substack to uh, make uh, make their I own gotcha. decision. <laughs> I gotcha. I understand. Yeah. Well, I you know it's probably no no question with my enthusiasm. I think people who are enthusiastic about it are probably yeah. going to be option three because that, that that's where I am now. It's it's not something that I came to lightly, but uh, but but yeah, I mean, um, I I'm a big uh, oh I don't know. Um, I, I guess this is a something that's been fascinating fascinated me. I've done a lot of research on it, uh, archaeological evidence and stuff like that. Find it fascinating. Um, but yeah, you know, there are different ways to teach it and everything else. My, the, the biggest thing for me, uh, and you know, people in, in this audience may think I'm crazy and that's fine. <laughs> um, the, but the sons of God are, are, are angels here. Uh, in my opinion, the biggest thing for me there is I, I just, I don't see how you read the book of Jude or, uh, first Peter, uh, you know, any other way. I feel like it gives a lot of clarification where you have, you know, the, 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 the new Testament authors are clearly, uh, in my opinion, from what I read, uh, aware of, of this interpretation of, of Genesis, uh, chapter, chapter six. But anyway, that's, that's neither here nor there. We don't have to dwell on it. Um, uh, you take a, take a read for yourself, decide for yourself. Uh, that's the best thing of one of the best things about, um, this, uh, uh, the Aquila report in, in review. And you have part one that did not make the list last week, but again, so you can go back and read part one, of Mitch Chase and, and and then obviously read part two as well. Uh, then number, let's see, let's see, is this seven? Yes. Seven. So this, seven. We have uh, something uh, just a, a lot more spicy. Uh, <laughs> cessationist, the film. Uh, this is by Tim Challies. The stakes are high, which means we do well to deepen our understanding and sharpen our convictions. Mm. So this has to do with cessationism. Uh, there's a film uh, apparently out there about it, and um, it's kind of going through this debate, the biblical evidence that these extraordinary gifts of the spirit were there to operate uh, you know, for a time. But then the film also goes through and talks about miracles in the Bible, how they seem to a lot of the miracles in the Bible seem to kind of clump together, uh, you know, around like a, a, a confined set of set of years or a figure in the Bible and that sort of thing. So um, kind of highlights how maybe the miracles in the Bible are actually a lot rarer than you think in terms of, you know, when you put it across the timeline. Ryan Beasy, what what were your thoughts on this? Oh, I can't wait to see the the film. I haven't seen it yet. Uh, Les Lanfear does great work. Uh, he did uh, Spirit and Truth, the worship documentary. He did a documentary on Calvinism. I don't know if he's done others uh, that are popular in our in our neck of the woods, but he does superb, you know, world class work. Uh, he uh, Charlie says it is a defense of the cessationist position and a critique of continuationism. It makes the argument through a, a script written and narrated by David Lovey. Interviews with those who hold to cessationist positions, such as Joel Beakey, Phil Johnson, and Stephen Lawson, and an abundance of videos. <laughs> 
by continuations teachers and leaders. So I can only imagine those videos would be uh, somewhat uh, disturbing. <laughs> so it's not a, you know, we report, you decide. It is arguing for the historic reformed biblical position on the extraordinary gifts of the Holy Spirit, which as uh, the, the historic reform position is that those gifts were limited to the days of the apostles and uh, select um, times in the Old Testament and the life of Christ. Uh, this also connects with our, our number one article with uh, Sovereign Grace Ministries as an organization that is more open to uh, charismatic gifts than a reformed church would be. Uh, and so Chalice concludes that Lanfear does a, a, a fine job, a valid defense of, of his position and, and critiquing the alternative. Yeah. And yeah, you, you read that sentence about it's a good summary of, of the issues, didn't you? That if cessationists are wrong, <laughs> we're neglecting to exercise the gifts of God. If continuationists are wrong, uh, we're, they're acting in a way the Bible forbid, forbids. So he, he, he puts the issue quite starkly there. Yeah. Highly recommend. Absolutely. Uh, then coming in at number eight. I don't know. It's like it's like this. The only thing I have to do is count. But I'm I'm second guessing myself. Dominic's job is a lot harder. Than I thought. Uh, all right. So coming in at number eight, we have sinners in the hand of an angry goddess. Christians should take note of the increasing clarity of the neo-pagans. This is my Joe Rigney. Now, this centers around a, a several minute long YouTube video or commercial uh, basically by Apple, the company Apple, which if you want to know a little bit about symbols, you know, the back of your iPhone literally is an apple with a bite taken out of it. A lot of people have taken note of that and believe it actually is referencing, you know, Eve taking a bite of the apple, but maybe not. Who knows? Um, but so Apple decides to essentially toot their own horn here, Ryan, and they create this this uh, video with the CEO, Tim Cook. Uh, and a lot of other uh, people around a table, they're very, very anxious. They're kind of rehearsing what they're going to say. There's obviously some big meeting happening. And then if you look out the window and it pans and you see this big gust of wind with some leaves. And all of a sudden there is this uh, uh, this woman at the table. This uh, and, and she is Mother Nature. Right. And they are she's essentially dressing all of them down and they have to prove to her that they have reduced their carbon emissions, uh, you know, to acceptable levels that they're, you know, not just planting trees, but planting forests. Uh, they're doing all of these things. And by the end of it, they make this ridiculous claim that all of their products, all of their products are going to have a net carbon neutrality by the year 2030, uh, which by the way, though, if you want to go down a rabbit hole, all of these big corporations, <laughs> including the world economic forum, uh, which are essentially run by real-life James Bond villains that I believe are satanic. Uh, there, there's this Agenda 2030, uh, and so that's these corporations are obsessed right now with this year 2030. They want a lot of their big global plans to kind of come to fruition by that year. Anyway, that's a a, a rabbit trail. Uh, so anyway, we have this piece written: "Sinners in the Hands of an Angry Goddess," and essentially, what's going on here is. Um, the author, uh, who is one second, uh, yeah, Joe Rigney. So Joe Rigney is essentially celebrating their honesty of the pagans and saying, we need to take them seriously. Okay. But they're basically telling us who, who, who they are. First, he writes, first, we can appreciate that the ad provides manifest evidence that Christians do not have a monopoly on cringe inducing religious propaganda <laughs> because it really was cringe. Yes. And it was 
it was full of dogma and religion and just like we're going to check all of these boxes of whatever this new religion is that has no forgiveness at all in it. Uh, second, we really ought to appreciate how overt the religious themes in the ad are human sacrifice and perform good works in order to placate an angry deity. Modern neo-paganism has rarely been as well represented in such a short video. I half expected one of the employers to slaughter a slaughter a ram on top of an altar of MacBook Pros. <laughs> Though I must confess confusion at the ad's disapproval of leather clothing isn't cow flatulence responsible for a significant portion of greenhouse gas emissions. So one of the employees was was wearing a leather jacket um, after he said something about we're not we're going to get rid of leather. Listen, they're getting rid of leather iPhone cases is what this ad claims to do. And then he's wearing a leather jacket and she gets mad at him. Anyway, it's a mix. It's a it's a you know, it's it's a crazy ad. Uh, Ryan Beasy, what were your thoughts? Uh, well, I. You know, I, at first I thought it was going to be a balanced critique because, like you said, he said there are things we can appreciate uh, for it. And, and you listed, you know, the, the first the first two. The, the third was we can appreciate the irony, uh, the divine sense of humor, the choice of the actress from Mother Nature. Uh, Octavia Spencer was the person who played the character representing God the Father in the movie adaptation of William Young's novel, The Shack. And I assume none of our uh, listeners have seen The Shack, so we wouldn't have gotten that reference uh, except for Joe Rigney here, but he says in the selection of Spencer for this ad, we see God's sense of humor as the attempted feminization of the Christian God now degenerates into the cult of the divine feminine. And so Mother Nature is dismissive of everyone at the table. Special contempt, though, is reserved for her, her male devotees. Um, and she, he says, uh, Rigney concludes, surprise, at the end, it's a woman who can boldly approach the throne of Mother Nature with confidence, unflinching and composed in the face of the goddess's withering questions. She is a priestess in the new religion, an intersectional status confirmed by the fact that white male Tim Cook immediately follows in her wake with all of his cringy earnestness and is assisted by her in making the final and peak offering of a carbon-neutral app watch and strong assurances of more offerings to come a well done critique absolutely i mean joe joe rigney really uh, knocks it out of the uh, the park here i, I loved the, the tone the the it was this was this was very good right up there with todd pruitt's and, article and and palmer robertson's and address. you know you, you also have to the 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 reference to the shack here really is an irony i'm glad i'm glad that you brought that up but for those of you who don't i mean don't watch the shack don't don't worry about reading the shack there's no but it, for those of you who don't know essentially you know at the end of the book you know god is portrayed as a uh, obese black woman basically and so that's the um that's that's kind of the callback here the same actress in that movie was also mother nature here so um number nine the most terrifying verse in the bible by marco Bovino, dear Christian, as you read 2 Timothy 4.10, your heart should scream how and why. Mm. Uh, this having to do with uh, Demas, um, Paul writing that Demas loved the present age and deserted him. And so this one verse is asking, that in this uh, article, Marco Bovino is asking, how could that be? 
And how could you how, and what a caution that is to us to work alongside Paul. Uh, you know, have Demas working alongside Paul and then just deserts him. So the idea being we should examine ourselves and um, understand that there is biblical evidence for people who just deceive themselves their entire lives. Uh, Ryan, what do you say? Yeah, this was, I think, yeah, it's a verse we can easily pass over, but how and why? Good questions to ask. You know, we may read the Bible, uh, says Bavano, uh, but not always keenly considering what the Lord intended to communicate. We may do our devotions, but we do not seek to bask in the beauty of the Savior and strive to behold his glory. Such mediocrity has led us to believe that the Holy Spirit breathed out useless words, and we quickly forget that our souls desperately need all of them, including the names at the end of the book. And so it's a verse we easily overlook, but he highlights the importance of meditation on the Scripture. Meditation on the Scripture something is um, quite lacking in the uh, modern church. There's a great resource by David Saxon, uh, published by uh, Reformation Heritage Books, God's Battle Plan for the Mind, to help us think seriously about God's Word and not just read it half distracted, as this uh, Marco Bovino is uh, urging us not to do. So he says, well, how can we avoid being like Demas? How can we make our calling and election sure? Well, uh, he, he points us where? To the scripture, to James chapter 4, uh, two non-negotiable practices that will bring you to the tomb uh, still loving Christ. No believer has seriously pursued these two has ever fallen in love with the present evil age. He says, be devoted to godliness and be devoted to the church. Be devoted to godliness. The most fundamental practice you must pursue daily is the well-being of your soul. Do not be content with reading the Bible. Dig deeper. Study. Seek the precious stones and then obey. Don't coddle yourself with the approval of men. Seek God's approval. And when you sin, not if you sin, but when you sin, run to him and repent. Purify your hearts, mourn, weep, and be humble. And so seek godliness to be devoted to godliness and be devoted to the church, to the people of God. And so there's another thread that we've seen earlier today with the uh, the parachurch article, a lack of devotion to the church. So important is the church. Outside of the church, there's no ordinary possibility of uh, salvation. The church is there to to serve us and for us to serve others. You know, we bring our gifts and and we are blessed by the gifts of others in the church. The church is the body of our Lord. And so he says, dear Christians, uh, these were the issues that led Demas astray. He stopped searching his heart and devoted himself to this present age instead of devoting himself to the church. Perhaps this is you. Perhaps you're allowing sin to suck the life out of your soul and it is slowly devouring you. I beg you, please don't let it kill you. Perhaps you're not meditating as much as you should or examining yourself as much as you should. Maybe you're going to church, but you're not really devoted to it. You're chatting, you're hanging out, but you're not really exhorting, commending, and encouraging others to strive after Christ. So a, a great practical uh, article, I thought, uh, with you know not just pointing out a problem, but again, just like Todd Pruitt does, uh, gives us prescriptions for uh, how to resolve this this issue and avoid this danger. Yeah, it really is good, and um, it's certainly an article that should you know cause us all to pause, self-reflect, um, and just recognize that 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 what happened to Demas, you know, it could happen to could happen to us so i mean it's really a great article and mm -hmm. 
I'm really glad. Uh, I'm really glad that it made the top ten. Number ten, we have what the Jubilee of Aquinas says about Rome and the Roman Protestant relations in some quarters. This by Tom Hervey. I don't believe. A matter of fact, I'm 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 99% sure this is not the first time Tom Hervey has written on Aquinas and uh, the concern of reformers uh, quoting uh, Aquinas. So um, what are your thoughts on this? I'm, I'm going to go on a limb here, and I'm going to say that, BZ, you're going to know a lot more about this than, uh, than I do. So just take it away, sir. Well, uh, you know, this was the number 10 article, but it was the number one article title in terms of word count. So there, he does have that going for him. Uh, Aquinas lived from about 1225 to 1274, and so he does – have this concern that some Protestants are showing uh, welcome to the thinking of Aquinas. He says, some Protestants have become so enamored with Aquinas that they have attempted to lay claim to him. John Gerstner published an article titled Aquinas was a Protestant in Table Talk in 1994. Well, and so I'm, I'm going to be one who would disagree with Professor Gerstner with great trepidation. Uh, but do, but Harvey does ask several good questions, and I but I do think it's important to remember that Aquinas lived three centuries before the Reformation, uh, and so he was actually leading a reform movement in the Western Church at that time. I believe it's Carl Truman who points out in one of his books uh, that Aquinas was a leader among those in the Western Church who were known as the preachers because of their emphasis on the Word of God, and so in criticizing Aquinas, we we might forget that they're there were Christians between the time of Augustine and John Huss or Martin Luther. But what God did through Luther was ignite a massive reformation, a massive renewal of the church as people were drawn to the word of God, which led to an explosion of the spiritual life and health in the places where the reformation did uh, take hold. And uh, but, but Hervey is correct. Uh, there are areas of Aquinas emphasized by Roman Catholic authorities since the Reformation that have, have been imbalanced and have served to stifle uh, the means with grace. Uh, so as with anything, we have to take a balanced approach and evaluate everything through the standard of God's word, which is our firm foundation. Absolutely. Uh, this is, uh, once again, this is one of those articles that is just more educational to me. Uh, you know, is, is somebody who is, uh, you know, always learning uh, about the Reformed faith and church history. Uh, something I was just telling my wife the other day, I need to know more about church history than I than I do. So that was number 10. Uh, give it a read and uh, become educated. Um, Ryan Beasy, it has been a privilege co-hosting uh, the Aquila Report in Weekly Review well, likewise, with you, sir. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you so much. We're going to be back at it, folks, again next week because Dominic is, in fact, in Egypt for two weeks. Uh, normally, we were able to do it remotely, uh, but his schedule just wouldn't allow it this time. And so we'll be back next week, me and uh, Mr. Beasy here. Um, and until then, uh, we pray uh, the Lord's uh, blessings upon you, uh, as Dominic so uh, uh, you know, adequately says every week. So thank you so much for listening, and we will see you guys next week.